you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello, and you're very welcome to episode 13 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs, presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. And Mark, good to see you as always. And given the time of year that's in it, there is only one question and one question alone. Did we top the charts? Did we get our Christmas number one? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, well, I think we are at fourth in the in the chart. Is that it? You were supposed to say that. But anyway, I think we we're at fourth. And I was going to say to you that, you know, Fairy Tale of New York was beaten to the number one spot by a band called East 17. So maybe I shouldn't be making comparisons between us and the Great Chain McGowan. But there you go. Anyway, for what it's worth, we are holding our own in the top 10. Okay. And Mark, uh, last week, people will remember our interview with uh, criminal defence solicitor Frank Buttermer. I think you're still recovering from that, are you? Exactly. Exactly. He's a very uh, forthright individual. I thought it was an absolutely fascinating interview. Uh, And we talked generally about his role as a criminal defence solicitor, but we were always going to end up talking about uh, Ian Bailey. A West Cork uh, issue, yes. Yeah, and it's a case that just captures the public imagination. And no surprise, we got great reaction to it. You know, people were fascinated by it and, and found it really, really interesting. Well, after two shows with leading solicitors, we're back in the law library and we're going to be joined uh, later by Senior Counsel Cleana Kimber and Barrister Claire Bruton, who are coming in to talk to us about the second edition of their leading work, Employment Equality Law, which was also co-authored by High Court Judge Marguerite Bulger. We'll be talking to them about the developments which have taken place in equality law over the past decade and which merited a new edition of this very important book. But first, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website. The first case is an asylum case and, amongst other things, concerns the thorny issue of what constitutes a marriage of inconvenience, a marriage of convenience. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, this is a decision of Ms. Justice Miriam O'Regan. It's entitled M versus the Minister for Justice. Uh, and the judge, having re- rejected the applicant's challenge to a deportation order op- imposed on him, further refused him leave to appeal her decision to the Court of Appeal on the basis that there was clear evidence that he had abused the immigration system in this jurisdiction over a number of years. That's right. So, um, <clears throat> traditionally, uh, th- there was general right of appeal from the High Court to the Court of Appeal. But um, in certain cases, particularly pl- uh, judicial review cases, they've tried to uh, r- r- limit the number of, of challenges that are, that, that are then brought on up on appeal. And so, in this particular case, it concerned a challenge to a deportation order, as you said, and um, one of the issues that had been determined in the course of the judicial review concerned the um, uh, the marriage of convenience issue. And so when Ms. Justice O'Regan, having uh, re- rejected the challenge, uh, effectively said that there were no grounds to challenge the deportation order, when she was asked to, um, to certify the case for leave to appeal to the Court of Appeal, she said no on partly on the, the standard grounds that there was, no, um, there was no issue of major public importance that required further elucidation. But she also specifically said that it was not in the public interest that an applicant who from the outset had abused the immigration 
system should be granted a further mechanism to perpetuate a presence in the country. Okay. And the two things that she mentioned in that regard were, first of all, that there was clear evidence that they, that she he had engaged in a marriage of convenience and that he couldn't give certain dates concerning when he had lived yes. with his spouse, but also that he had gone back to pa- Pakistan okay, where he came thing. from. That was the curious mm. bit mm. I thought about this. I mean, obviously, mm. a marriage of convenience that happens and, you know, mm. the courts can take a strong line on that. Uh, but in this case, he had voluntarily gone home to Pakistan himself. Exactly. But he didn't get any credit for that. Sure he didn't? No, if, if anything, the other way around. That <laughs> having said that he was in danger of persecution in Pakistan, that he seemed to have managed to go back on a voluntary basis without suffering persecution. Okay, okay. So, very interesting case, uh, that one. Okay, next to a free movement of goods case, where the good in question was a hemp oil product, which according to Judge Alexander Owens, contained a psychoactive agent, which is the main psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, no less. Exactly. Uh, this is the case of Bogusas uh, versus the Minister for Health, if I pronounce that correctly. And it's a decision, as I said, of Mr. Justice Owens in the High Court. It, this concerned a judicial review in which the judge found that the importation of hemp oil containing this psychoactive agent could not be legalised or permitted under law relating to the EU free movement of goods principle. Yes, yeah, so the, the applicants in this case had been trying to import hemp oil from another EU member state. And there is, there was hemp oil already uh, it, for sale in Ireland that did not contain this particular uh, product, which is THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, seems to be the name of it. Um, As the man says, that's easy for easy you to, for you to say. say. Exactly. Um, but the um, so 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 the applicants in this case had had tried to import some of this hemp oil and had 215 vials of it seized. Um, so he tried to argue that because it was available in other EU states, that um, that he ought to be able to import it and sell it freely within Ireland on free movement of goods principles. But Mr. Justice Owens pointed to the fact that there was already an EU convention in relation to narcotics that specifically said that Ireland was not supposed to be legalising this this type of product. Okay. And so that there was no way under EU law that they could you could simply say because it was available in another EU state that it should be available made available in Ireland. And there is obviously mm. the fact that this was illegal in Ireland that exactly. trumps any entitlement under the free movements free movement yeah, of goods yeah. and, uh, and, principles. And it was also worth mentioning that he was he obviously wanted his 215 files back yes. and Mr Justice Owens I'm so, afraid no, was not late. very sympathetic because when he was notified of the seizure he was specifically told that he had 30 days if he wanted to appeal it and he hadn't invoked that provision. But what does that mean? Does that mean that if he had appealed it within 30 days he could have had. I mean, like that. Well, he that's hadn't. He hadn't exhausted his, his his remedies. So he never if went he to whether he was entitled to them back in the first exactly, place. Yes, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Very good. Well, finally, Mark, this evening to a sentencing matter for sexual offences that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. This is the case of the Director of Public Prosecutions versus MJ, and giving the decision on behalf of the Supreme Court in this case was Ms. Justice Isolt O'Malley. The case concerned historical sex abuse offences which had been committed in 1978. That's right. So back in 1978, this was the the offence in question was called indecent assault. Now, since that, then it has been replaced with the offence of sexual assault. But in 1978, the maximum available uh, sentence for indecent assault was two years imprisonment. 
Now, in this case, it was the, the um, abuse of a, of a young boy, and there were um, five, um, uh, I think he pleaded guilty to five offences, and he was therefore set, given five consecutive sentences of 21 months each. And I think the last of those sentences was suspended for a period of about three years. Now, he appealed that to the Court of Appeal, and then it went on up to the Supreme Court. And the, the real issue was whether or not the sentences should have been um, made, should have been concurrent rather than consecutive. So if they're concurrent, they're all served at the same time. Yes. If they're consecutive, it's one after another. Um, and the what, what the Supreme Court was concerned about was what they call the totality principle. That even once you've gone through all of the the the, the relevant sort of mitigation and all of the, those other features, you still need to look at the totality. And what Ms. Justice O'Malley said in this case was that the totality in this case was effectively a sentence of eight years and nine months, which would equate to a sentence for rape or buggery in the court of uh, the, the Central Criminal Court. And she said that if you are sentencing somebody for, what you, I suppose you might say, mere indecent assault... It's not that you couldn't give a sentence that was equated to rape in the Central Criminal Court, but you would want to give a good reason for giving quite such yes. a high sentence, which in this case with the five con uh, consecutive sentences effectively amounted to that. Okay, well now obviously it's a very detailed decision from Ms Justice O'Malley and I've had a lo little look at it, I haven't had a look, I haven't had a look at it in, in the same detail that you have. But there was one thing I spotted, there was a quotation in the middle of it that I found curious uh, and this is one thing she said, she said, this is a quote, I would not accept as a general proposition that an erroneous decision made by a trial judge on one aspect of a case necessarily contaminates other separate aspects, even if that logical connection is absent. I thought that was a kind of a curious statement. You know, I mean, if you've got it wrong in a part, maybe there's still a part of the decision that remains correct. I, I don't know. I think I'd I, be rushing to the appeal court in that circumstance. I think what she's saying there is that you still need to look at the totality principle. So, for example, there's a number of steps that you're supposed to go through if you're a judge sentencing somebody. And one is to identify what they call a headline sentence. You then identify what they call aggravating or mitigating factors. It's then open to you to suspend a portion of the sentence. So that if, for example, you were to identify a very high headline sentence, but then were to give sufficient uh, sufficient credit for mitigating features to bring it back in line with what it would otherwise have been. Yes. I think she's saying, well, in those circumstances, you wouldn't necessarily expect that to okay, be interfered no, with good. on appeal. Well, well explained. And thank you for those three really, really interesting cases. And we're going to be back shortly with Cleana Kimber and Claire Bruton. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio uh, two colleagues of mine, uh, Cleana Kimber, Senior Counsel, and Claire Bruton, Barrister at Law, who have just published, along with High Court Judge Margaret Bul Marguerite Bulger, uh, the latest edition, or the second edition of your book, Employment Equality Law. Cleana, there was a launch recently. I heard it was a great success. Sadly, I wasn't there. Unfortunately, I know you very kindly invited me. I couldn't make it along, but I heard it was a fantastic launch. It was a really nice launch. Uh, a shout out to the Museum of Literature Ireland. Uh, although we didn't quite publish a, a book of literature, uh, it, it was an appropriate place. 
uh, hall uh, of great books, so it was an appropriate place to launch it. And Claire launched by Nula Butler, Court of Appeal judge. Yes, Miss Justice Butler, and she gave a really insightful um, speech when she was launching it and touched on a number of really important issues, particularly in the area of employment equality law. Um, for ex- example, she was mentioning the, the issue of, of um, the absence of uh, civil legal aid in employment claims, and she mentioned that sometimes um, uh, cases in the High Court and the Superior Courts are getting a, a chilly, have received a, a chilly uh, reception because um, these cases, you know, they are complex. So she was very much advocating um, in in favour of, um, uh, you know, uh, equality rights um, yeah. insofar as they can be being okay, good. Uh, and an old respected. friend of the show, Siobhan Phelan, senior counsel. Sarah, Sarah Phelan, sorry, Sarah Phelan. We were, we were talking about a judge, Siobhan <laughs> Phelan, earlier uh, pre pre this broadcast. Uh, but Sarah Phelan also spoke, uh, chairperson of the Bar Council. That's right, and she spoke uh, very eloquently about the actual briefing policy and all of the various practical and substantive um, policies that the the bar is looking at in terms of trying to to deal with equality issues um, across the board, um, not just for women, but of course family-friendly initiatives as well. So that was was excellent to get that practical um, uh, example of what is being done and how sophisticated it all has been. Yeah, and you all spoke, and of course uh, we can't really have Marguerite here today, can we? As a High Court judge, she probably didn't feel it was appropriate to come in, even though she's very much part of publishing this book I'm with you guys. Sh- I'm sure she's, she would have been very welcome. Um, oh, she's, very she's very welcome. Much a, she's very, very much welcome on another occasion if she's <laughs> listening out there. But anyway. Very much. She's, she's very, very much part of the process. Obviously, we each divided the book up uh, into five chapters each um, and uh, we all worked very much in tandem and, and discussing things. Wonderful. And taking it to a conclusion. Okay, so 10 years ago, you, f- you first brought out the first edition of Employment Equality Law and it was the first book of its type. I mean, obviously, Equality Law you know, the impetus for equality law in Ireland came from Europe to a certain extent and then we had the 1998 Employment Equality Act and various different iterations of that thereafter. So, why was this book necessary in the first place, Cleena? Well, I'm going to go back a little bit before that, I think, because the very first book that we did was, in fact, Sex Equality Law because that's all there was at the time. We published that just when I started in the bar, just in about 2000, the year 2000. Um, And Marguerite Bulger... um, my friend at the time, now Miss Justice Bulger, and I were both in the King's Inns and wanted to write a book and that's what we wrote. And when you think about it, it's not that long ago and yet that's the only equality that there was. You didn't have all the other grounds, age, race, member of the travel community, all of the other nine grounds. So then we then we brought, when the new legislation came in um, in 1998, Claire came on board and it had to change into employment equality law. And that was in 2016, I think, was that? 2012. Um, And now, what has changed? So much has changed because things are developing all the time. It reminds me, Peter, that when I was on my summer holidays this year, I was chatting with my nieces. I had 14, 16, two two 16-year-olds and a 14-year-old. And we were talking about trans issues. And I had such an interesting conversation with them. Centred around athletes and people self-declaring. And are you male or are you female? Are you something in between? And they were so strong about it, very strong views. Uh, And they are the people, they are the women of the future. And these are all the issues. So the issues of equality and diversity are constantly changing for the general public. And that feeds hugely into law. So... If we look at sort of the legal aspects of it in the book, what are the different things, the, the, the key things, I suppose? The one thing that I find usually in my practice is retirement ages. 
can say a little bit about that after okay, if you're we, interested. We can, yeah, we can come back to that later. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, just just to bring just to bring yeah. in Claire for a second. Claire, you you were as uh, Cleana and Marguerite uh, were kind of working together and then you came in. Uh, were you devilling with Marguerite? That's that, right, yeah. yes. In fact, okay. I, think I, I said this at both book launches that I was very lucky to work with both um, Miss Just, now Miss Justice Bulger and with Cleaner because they were both very formative in, in um, establishing my interest in employment law and particularly equality law because Cleaner um, uh, lectured me in, in, in Trinity in employment law and equality law and then I deviled for uh, Marguerite, now Miss Justice Bulger. So I was delighted to be involved with the book in 2012 Um and again, now, uh, 10 years later, when so much significantly has changed in the area of equality law. And I think one of the areas that we look at in the book is the possibility of extending the uh, nine grounds of equality yes. um, beyond the nine traditional grounds. I know uh, Cleanan was mentioning the transgender um, ground, and that is covered by gender under the Employment Equality Act. Uh, the minister, uh, the relevant minister, Roderick O'Gorman, did uh, conduct a, re- a review, a consultation uh, process and was looking at uh, uh, positively bringing in uh, transgender as a as a protected ground. Um, but, you know, if, if we look, for example, and this is something that struck me um, on the, the between the two uh, editions is, you know, sometimes judicial interpretation is not going to give rise to um, equity and uh, expanding the grounds to the to the manner in which perhaps those advocates of equality rights may desire. Well, that's, well, that's where your legislators come in. Exactly. Sure. And for example, um, a perfect example of that would be the Equal Status Act. Yes, and 2000, know, yeah. Exactly. And as you know, the housing assistance ground came in in the context of accommodation because that was a, an area that was, uh, as you know, the Equal Status Act covers a number of areas, goods yes. and services and education. But they brought in the legislator. The legislator had to intervene to bring in the ground of housing assistance. So there, there is um, potentially the ground of uh, socioeconomic rights. Yes, for example. that's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, that and is. There was supposed to be. There was a bill brought in around 2017, 2018, if memory serves me correctly. That's and they were talking about bringing in a socioeconomic. You know, if you're on the wrong side of the tracks, you can't be discriminated against, which is a really good thing. I would have thought. Yes. Uh, and also, mental health was that another issue that was sort of raised, Cleda? Am I right on that? I think, um, um, sorry, I might just come in there, but the, the socioeconomic uh, ground, uh, that's one of the grounds, in fact, that Roderick O'Gorman was looking at. And, there's, you know, it's, it's really important to bring that in because there's such a circle of, uh, you know, on the one hand, if you are socioeconomically disadvantaged, it's difficult to get employment. And yet, if you're unemployed or not able to get employment, then you end up in the poverty trap. So in some respects, it's equivalent, analogous potentially to disability, but it's certainly an area that needs to be looked at. And I think the... I think it is a it is a protected ground that needs to be to be looked at. Okay. Yeah, and and fleshed out quite a lot because it's a little bit unclear at the moment. How are you going to draw a line? Are you going to like how? And I've been listening to some other conversations on that. So are you going to are you going to designate a particular neighbourhood or an address, and then that's stigmatising for that group? Are you going to go by way of education? Are you going to say people who have only re- reached a certain amount of education? Are you going to do it means tested financially? So. There's a lot of work needs to be going, and I think the minister is looking at it, but there's a lot of work uh, needs to go into how do you draw a line around a group 
so that you can yes. then litigate And it. then they become a category. Yeah. Can I just go back to the book, actually? Yes. And you said very interestingly, Kleena, at the start, that there's 15 chapters mm-hmm. and you took five each. Yes. Okay, will you tell me how do you go about doing that? You have three authors. How do you pick the five? Do you say, I'm going to do the gender one? You can do the one on disability. Is that, is that the way yeah, it works? Yeah, more or less, yeah. Okay. Um, I suppose as well, we might have had particular cases in that area and developed a particular practice in that area. So I'd previously uh, written a, a book on uh, disability discrimination at one point. So I had a huge interest in, in the disability area. Uh, so I fed into parts of that that chapter. Yeah, we pretty much decided, you know, and who's do you going all, to do, do what. You all have an I think input. the age chapter as well, Kleena, you, you know, that was a, a chapter that um, you had a, a big I did. Uh, responsibility I a, for because you've had quite a, a degree of um, cases in that area, isn't it? That's right, yeah. I've done quite a lot of age discrimination cases, that's true, you know, at, at all levels. Just to, as a matter of practice, I mean, you said there are nine grounds of d- d- discrimination in, in employment quality legislation. I mean, would would sort of sex discrimination still be the overwhelming majority of cases or or it, do you find that the, that a particular type of discrimination is more is well more alleged or more found to be in 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 existence well you do see and there are reports done and the workplace relations commission does a report and um, labor court will do a report on the types of cases and they do tend to sort of go up and down you know and depending on on what is current at a particular time. In our practices, obviously, we see a certain snapshots, so we're, we're not really as, as good, perhaps, at those, as those external reports. Um, but, you know, surprisingly, uh, Mark, uh, pregnancy discrimination is still right. one of the issues, and you would think now after 30, 40 years, but no, it's still there, you know, people being uh, dismissed or let go because they're pregnant. Particularly in the, as blatant as that. I mean, uh, it, it, well, they're not told that, but sure. but you know, they announce that they're pregnant, and then suddenly it's ah, you know, actually we don't need anybody to do that anymore, you know. But it does tend to be a lot of it tends to be um, the actual dismissal tends to be at the the lower end um, of the wage um, price, if I might sure. put it like that. But you do see at the at the professional end, you will see people's careers suddenly being. Um, um, sidelined somewhat and they find that suddenly they're not being invited to those top business lunches or suddenly, you know, the work isn't as good or they're they're shunted off into a sideline um, and it is very difficult for working women. A lot of assumptions are made, you know. Yeah, and I think, Lena, going, uh, just coming back to what you just said there, particularly when, when women come back from maternity leave, particularly women in, um, you know, in, in a number of uh, areas, um, both um the lower end and the upper end, it can be, you know, it can be, it's at human, a human level, it can be difficult for uh, an employer to, you know, to, to deal with a, an employee coming back from maternity leave who's been out of the workplace. And in fact, you know, their maternity leave replacement may be there. But fundamentally, there's such a, a significant special protection for women coming back from maternity leave and uh, for them to come back to the same job that they held prior to their maternity leave. And, and when leave. you say it's difficult and, for the employer, do you mean it's difficult for the employer to adapt to the uh, maternity? I mean, do you think... Do you think employers are sufficiently protected in relation to having to make the arrangements for sort of substitute cover and the whatever retraining is is required? I mean, is there is there more government kind of intervention that might be helpful in that from, from that yeah, point of view? Yeah, I mean, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission have a number of quite useful reports in in, um, in terms of uh, women coming back from maternity leave and what's required. It's pretty well known now. It's more on a human level that employers mm. would uh, would you know. 
um, you know, be cognizant of the fact that the employee has been out of the workplace, but that cannot uh, be taken into account generally. There's a fine line and it's always a balancing exercise between, you know, a woman coming back from uh, maternity leave um, and having been out of the workplace for up to potentially a year and mm. Obviously, things can't stay the same in a year, mm. particularly in a di- in a lot of employers, which would be very dynamic. Yeah. And then um, on the you know protecting those rights, but on the other hand, that the employer is that the the woman sorry has a right to come back um, onto the same job. I know in the United Kingdom, for example, they have this notion of keep in touch days. So an employer has to, um, and some employers here in Ireland would have this on a policy uh, basis. If the if the woman going mater- uh, before she starts uh, during her pregnancy or during maternity leave can be contacted uh, by the employer, and you know certain developments in the employer, or even sometimes even come into the workplace, you know just to, up just to speed with changes in the workplace. Exactly. Exactly. She's been out. Yeah, and that's certainly something yeah. that would be um, of assistance. Because presumably, I mean, you know, for, for a number of women, it's not just one maternity leave. There's a number of maternity leaves over a period of years. And then, you know, it must be, you know, difficult both for, the, for, for herself and the employer to then bring her to the stage where she would have been at the outset. I so. don't agree with you on Is that, Mark. No, 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 not at all. I mean, if you look at our book launch, for example, mm. all of the people. So, uh, Miss Justice, uh, Miss Justice Bulger in the High Court, uh, Miss Justice Butler in the Court of Appeal, Sarah Phelan, Chair of the Bar Council, myself, Senior Counsel, and Claire Bruton, Junior Counsel. We are all working mothers. Yeah. And nobody's telling us that we're not at the top of our game or where we should be. I, I, I really would push back on that, sure. Mark. Okay. I don't think, and don't forget as well, you know, we're not here with an image of, you know, these male employers and mm. then these females going out, you know. Mm. It, the workplace is fluid. It's got lots of different types of people in it. And the statistics show any of the reports or anything that you see, they do say that the workplace, which is diverse, and I'm not just talking about women, I'm talking about all, all manners of diversity. The workplace that is diverse performs better, yeah. has better decisions, has better profits, etc. Any study you look at. So anybody that's sitting there thinking of the workplace as that the men and the women leaving and needing to be to be uh, accommodated back in. I mean, I push back on that, Mark. I think that's well, old-fashioned. Well, well, sorry, I, I, I thought the, the I thought what. what Claire was talking about was specifically accommodation of uh, women who were coming back. Well, it's it's not accommodation per se. It's the fundamental rights that the women have yeah, coming yeah, back from maternity yeah. leave to their job. But in terms of keeping touch days and, yes. and that kind of thing, I yeah. mean, it is a it, it is a, a matter of getting up to speed with with can, anything, with changes. That can I, can I come in there and just go in a different direction, uh, Cleena? You said at the start that another area is age discrimination and grounds of age and retirement. Everybody's working forever these days, okay? And that's changed things, hasn't it? People have been forced out of jobs at the age of sixty five other people may be working longer than they want to work. That's a new area, isn't it? It's a huge area and there's been huge developments and we can we can look at this in two areas. You've got the public service and private service. And so the public service, everybody listening to this will be aware of the um, economic collapse and all of that sort of stuff. And you can see that retirement ages in the civil service went up and down like yo-yos. You know, when, when there was mass unemployment, the retirement age changed. At one point, there was no retirement age in the civil service, and now it's 70, okay? And the government policy at the moment is you don't make assumptions. Some people will want to leave early, some people won't have any pensions, and will want to retire much later. And then you have the private sector in which, in professional jobs, which is very surprising, a lot of them, partners in various professional firms, it's it's 60, 62, 63, they, they want... Um, they want you out. Um, so you're seeing ageist practices. 
that have to be challenged. Oh, Is that what you're saying? There's a huge conversation, Peter, around retirement ages. You know, what, as a society, we haven't quite figured it all out yet. Okay. What should it be? Where should it go? Um, should people be, should you just take it away completely and leave it up to the individual? Should you have an age? It's it's going to happen in the future, and of course, there's a whole dynamic behind that as well, which is the whole pensions, you know, yes, uh, and paying for pensions, particularly when we're talking about public sector pensions. So there is a lot happening. There is going to be a lot of litigation. There has been a lot of litigation, and there's going to be even more. Can I talk about the mechanisms of redress? When you guys brought out your first edition of the book, the Employment Appeals Tribunal was very much alive and well. That's gone now. You have the double the Workplace Relations Commission uh, is the is the number one. The the, the initial. Uh, forum that you go to if you have an equality complaint. Is that working? Has that system worked, do you think? I think, um, thanks Peter, I think it's uh, the Workplace Relations Commission, as we know, I mean, I think the biggest change since the last edition of the book, of the book and I think particularly this has a huge uh, potential in the context of um, equality disputes, is now that both the work, any of these statutory tribunals, quasi-statutory tribunals, have the right to disapply uh, European, sorry, to disapply Irish law if it is in uh, breach of um, EU law. And in fact, the... This w- is the famous Garda Commissioner case. That is. The, the, I think it's known as Boyle. Um, I think it's the, that was the, the case involving yes. the um, um, maximum recruitment age in the Guards. And that, in fact, the WRC, in fact, disapplied the, the statutory instrument in that case, ultimately when it came back from the Court of Justice. And there have been a number of, of uh, cases, one involving the organisation of Working Time Act where the, uh, that I'm aware of that the Workplace Relations Commission have disapplied uh, EU law when it's in, 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 in breach of um, uh, sorry, have disapplied Irish law when it's in breach of the EU, the relevant underlying EU legislation. I suppose something else that, that the, the Workplace Relations Commission in terms of the hearings, there's a much more sophisticated process now compared to the days of the EAT and certainly the, the and the Equality Tribunal were dealing with equality cases at the time. And, you know, there's now written submissions, um, but particularly in the context, context of very uh, complex equality cases where you can have um, a hearing date of maybe four or five hours being allocated to an equality case I'm thinking, for example, of sexual harassment cases where you can, you know, these can be long, complex cases and you're, you're only allocated, you know, a certain amount of hours. There should be provision for some kind of case management yes. for those type of complex cases. And that's something that the WRC should look at. They they have, and the Labour Court indeed, and they, they have tightened up the procedures both within the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court in terms of getting cases on for hearing. Okay. Um, but I, I think that will be something to, to, to look at. And how about at. you, Clean? What do you think in terms of the WRC and Labour Court um, in terms of the areas of equality? I mean, they're obviously very alive mm. to the issues. Mm. Well, you have your uh, entry into the WRC, appeal to the Labour Court, appeal to the High Court on a point of law and a possible appeal onwards then um, to the Supreme Court. Um, the things that would strike me, Peter, really are the absence of civil legal aid. Um, yes, because there are which lots is absolutely huge, it's isn't huge. it? It's huge, it's huge. I mean... Because, I mean, in people's lives, you know, the two most important things to them perhaps are their family and their job, you know, and and their input with with, uh, ordinary people, their input with the legal system is either a family law, breakup of a family relationship or breakup of an employment relationship, you know. And given that it's so fundamental, our work is so fundamental and people particularly on low wages, 
no civil legal aid, you know, uh, and the law is complicated and it's really hard. And they're going to come up against a very wealthy employer generally, or maybe not a very wealthy employer, but an employer who generally can afford to meet the legal costs of their claim. So they're often the people that are representing the employee who's looking for redress is dependent on the goodwill of their legal team. It's it's really, really, really unfair. It's fundamentally outrageously unfair. I think I'm probably getting a bit political here, but I do think it's outrageous, isn't it? It is outrageous. I I agree with you. You know, and, and barristers do a huge amount of, of pro bono work um, on cases that they see are meritorious um, and, uh, you know, the legal profession carries an awful lot of the absence of civil legal aid. Um, now, there is a call for submissions, I think, which are due in after Christmas, perhaps, um, for amendments to the civil legal, legal aid scheme. Uh, and that is one of the areas, I think, perhaps that, the, that needs to be looked at, civil legal aid for Employment quality. Yeah, I think Lena. I mean, it it, it does bear, beg the question mark in terms of whether, in fact, it's it's giving a, a denial of an effective remedy for people as a matter of, of EU law if if there isn't an ability in in the appropriate case to to get um, legal aid, civil legal aid. I mean, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission do um, take on strategic cases, and they're increasingly taking on strategic cases insofar as their resources allow, and that is increasing. But that still is an extremely limited number of cases. So there is certainly been a goodwill um, uh, uh, type of approach by uh, lawyers and barristers. We all know of those, but I think it does need to be put more on a, on a formal legal footing. Yeah, well, one issue that interests me is that obviously we've been in the EU for a long time. Do When 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 policy is being developed in this area, do people look at other EU countries and what their, their, their uh, policies are? Because certainly I'm aware that I think in Belgium, for example, they have a sort of blind CV screening so that you don't have a name or a, a place. So, you know, the things you're talking about in terms of socioeconomic discrimination or race discrimination or all of those sort of things are very or, or, or any kind of discrimination that can be indicated by either a name or a, a place of origin can be effectively wiped to the extent that the employer only gets to know what type of person they're dealing with when they actually interview them rather than at the much earlier stage when it might be tempting for somebody to sort of say oh well, I prefer somebody Irish or I prefer somebody who lives in a particular part of the city. Is it, is, do you know if there's any of that kind of um, research done within Ireland? Yes, there have been. Um, there has certainly been studies done um, in Ireland to show that, in fact, if you know the same CV with somebody with a, a name maybe mm. off that would indicate of a particular uh, race because we have race protection here sure. as a matter of Irish law which is broader than required under the the underlying EU directive and an Irish person and the the same CV in that sort um has been has been undertaken and there's obviously there's a unfortunately a lower um level of success in terms of applications yeah. there's nothing as a matter of law you know um uh, requiring anonymous screening but um certainly the um the employment quality act applies Significantly but it, but, but it is done stages. in other EU countries, I think, isn't it? Anonymous yes, perhaps. Yeah. Yes, I'm certainly mm. aware that there have mm. been in terms of, and that can then buy into the, the burden of proof sure. um, in terms of the types of mechanisms that are required for an employee to meet their burden of proof um, as a matter of, of EU law. Um, and you know, you know, you would see quite, you know, for example, there's a number of cases that we have in our book, um, say for, I'm thinking of one involving Belgium, where in fact there was no um, no actual applicant for the job. Um, this is um, a case um, in, in Ferran, uh, Ferran, which is involving um, uh, 
race discrimination um, because of uh, an employer publicly stating that they would not employ individuals of a certain certain ethnic uh, background. And there's been a couple of more recent cases that we have looked at. So even so, the the equality body in that case had the right to bring the case without right. any. Um, applicants. So you can see how the development of the case law is not, you know, expressly providing as a matter of Irish law in the leg- sorry in the legislation, but it is by implication being being coming in into into Ireland. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of race discrimination, I mean, we are living in a, a much more diverse society, even in the space of ten years. I think Ireland mm-hmm. has become more and more diverse. And I'm actually thinking of the late, great Richard Grogan, who sadly left us recently, who did an awful lot of work in this area and is responsible for a lot of the thinking that the Labour Court has introduced into this area. Would you agree with me that when I say that clearly? I would, yes. I mean, he took a lot of cases which at the time were very unpopular um, and he took a lot for non-nationals and pushed them forward. And uh, exploring the area. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking particularly where the Labour Court was forced to, to, to clarify the whole race discrimination type um, law was um, a whole lot of non-nationals had been treated very badly by um, a particular employer. And um, Mr. Grogan brought the claim for them and the Labour Court said, well, yes, they have been treated very badly and any number of employment rights have been breached, but unfortunately they've treated their Irish workers equally badly, so there's no race discrimination here. And that you was know, the full defence, wasn't it? And we, just, was, we just treat everybody we, badly, yeah. not because you're Polish or because you exactly. come from Zimbabwe. Exactly. exactly. That, that, was, that was the defence, and that's a perfectly good defence in Irish law, isn't it? Can, can I ask you about representing people, okay? Both of you are incredibly successful employment practitioners and excellent pro- employment practitioners, and you act for both employees and employers. Is that difficult at times? Because you have the skills to represent both sides. Do you find that hard or is that, is no. that, is, is that you know, just whoever you're representing, you get up and give it a lash? Exactly. And I mean, when you look at it, in fact, this is something I said when I was you know, at the book launch during the week. In, in my in my career, I, I, I don't, you don't really mean anybody who's, who's bad or anybody's actually out there. I'm not talking about something from the employer side. They're not out there to discriminate against people, okay? But, you know, mistakes are made or they haven't thought something through or assumptions have been made or they're not aware or, or things just get passed. And, and also, um, there are many uh, people who make false allegations or, or don't, you know, I'm talking about employees, they may make, uh, or allegations or they maybe they they feel that something is the case but actually it's not you know yes so to know is to love you know so you meet your client <laughs> okay. you look at the problem that's in front of them and you see it from their perspective you know? what, what do you say to that Claire yeah I think I think I mean I would do a mixture of both as you were you were saying and I think it's I personally enjoy doing both sides of it because you know if you're acting for the employer and you've done a, you know, a, a number of employee cases in that particular area, you can look around corners and, and see and, and predict and have a perception in terms of what you think, the how the employee is going to uh, run the case, etc. Um, and so I, I personally feel that it's important to do, to do both. I mean, uh, inequality law, for example, um, a, an employer, it is a very different hat to wear in some respects, because as an employer, you may be 
trying to rely on the exceptions to discrimination or the defences, like Lena was saying. And you can anticipate what the employee is going to be saying in terms of the uh, in terms of their arguments. And by corollary, corollary, because most of the um, burden of proof rests with the employee. Um, when you've acted for employees, you can assist the employer then in terms of how you you think that that the case is going to. Uh, uh, proceed and perhaps how the um, employee is going to to uh, try and make their case. Yes, Certain, absolutely. And, and, and everybody is entitled to representation. Exactly. And everybody is entitled to the best representation. Isn't, isn't that it? Exactly. Folks, this has been absolutely fantastic, but we can't let you out of the room without asking you the most important questions of all, Mark. Do you want to, do you want to take our uh, guests through yeah, uh, our final uh, questions, which are often illuminating? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, if, I, if either or both of you have either a book or a film that you'd like to recommend either to our colleagues in the legal professions or to any law students who might wish to follow in your footsteps? I'm going to start with uh, Anatomy of a Scandal. Um, I normally hate watching uh, legal stuff because it's a bit of a busman's holiday, but I actually flipped it on one night in in Netflix and it was really interesting. It's a BBC programme and it's a a sexual assault uh, at mystery slash legal drama um, and a political scandal and it's really very good. What I liked about it from a legal point of view is that there are women QCs in it um, and you see how hard they work. You see the main female QC sitting there on a Friday evening not able to go to the party because she's wading through this lever arch of papers and I kind of empathised with that a little bit. What I quite liked was the drinks cabinet in the corner of her room. Yeah, exactly. I can't say that I, we have that in the distillery building in Dublin, but it was a, it was really good, and and it was I I felt it was a good representation of what my work is is like. Okay, very good. And Claire, anything? Yeah, I was thinking about this. So it was a good question. I watched, I rewatched Philadelphia, the nineteen ninety three movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom, uh, Hanks. Tom Hanks. I'm a massive Oscar winning performance. Exactly. Think, yeah. yeah, and got great music from Bruce Springsteen as well in it. I love Tom Hanks, um, and the movie it's it's set in in the 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 eighties and at the age, at the time of the AIDS epidemic, and he was employed. Um, in a in a law firm and was discriminated on grounds of his uh, sexuality and also having um, uh, AIDS and it showed how individuals who put themselves above the parapet in a very difficult set of situation uh, with their lawyers and are furthering the laws um, and it shows I mean there was a there was a lot of backlash from watching sure. in terms of, of what he he went through what the character Andrew Beckett went through it's, ba- it's loosely based on, on a true story I rewatched it recently I thoroughly enjoyed it and it kind of struck me that you know it's something that perhaps you know we kind of we tend to forget that the, it is significant for these four individuals to take on these cases Did it seem dated? Um that's a good. It certainly. It seemed. I would like to think it seemed dated in 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 the actual subject matter in terms of uh, aid, uh, home, uh, discrimination grounds of sexual orientation and AIDS, but it did strike me as still, unfortunately, possibly still plus being, a change. <laughs> exactly, and for example, transgender rights being the the, the the latest corollary that it could have. Um, but it's a great movie and. Okay, two fabulous, fabulous recommendations great. there. Thank you great very actor. much, guys. Folks, can I thank you so much for coming in and talking to us, to give us, giving us the time to come in and talk about the second edition of your book. Uh, it's, it's such an important uh, employment uh, law work and it's one that every legal practitioner should have on their shelf. Cleena Kimber, Senior Counsel, and Claire Bruton, Barrister, thank you so much for coming in and being guests on The Fifth Court. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you very much. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week.
And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guests, Senior Counsel Cleana Kimber and Barrister Claire Bruton for coming in and talking to us about the second edition of their book, Employment Equality Law. And I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. Take a bow, Lee. Brilliant work there behind the window. Uh, If you have any comments or any legal stories you'd like to raise, with us, please contact us on our website or on LinkedIn. Uh, Mark, this is our last uh, broadcast of 2022. I think it's been a good year. I think it has been a good year. Uh, And again, our parting message is, even when people have digested the turkey and all that sort of carry on, will you send it out there and share? What else do you possibly have to do during your Christmas holidays than to share Fifth Court with all of your friends oh, and colleagues hope you and do. have a very happy Christmas and New Year. Yeah, we might get a New Year number one. I'll have to stop with that. I'll have to stop with that. Okay, Mark, we, and we've got to say on the last occasion when we were talking to Frank Buttermer uh, that we should have wished all our listeners uh, a very happy Christmas. So can I take this opportunity to wish them on behalf of you know, and me? I certainly agree with that. Okay, and so from myself, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening. Uh, enjoy the festive break and we'll see you back again in the Fifth Court in the New Year. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.